You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Friday, May 22nd, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. We're going to be joined by our co-founder, Rao Paul, in a few minutes. But first, Nick Correa with a thumbnail analysis of the events in Hong Kong. Thanks, Ash. Today, we're going to take a look at China's recent announcement of new security laws over Hong Kong that could undermine its autonomy and special privileges the city has been granted by the U.S. The announcement had been made a few hours before the National People's Congress came together for their annual lawmakers meeting. These new laws would entail tighter security restrictions that affect Hong Kong through targeting subversion, terrorism, and foreign influence operations. Xinhua, China's state-owned news outlet, reported that, quote, when needed, relevant national security organs of the Central People's Government will set up agencies in Hong Kong to fulfill relevant duties to safeguard national security, end quote. No details have been put forth yet about how these new laws will be carried out, but that hasn't stopped the U.S. from being outwardly spoken about their stance and markets from making dramatic price action on the news. If the U.S. deems that a move like these new security laws further deteriorates the one country, two systems policy that allows Hong Kong democratic and civil rights liberties, this grants President Trump the ability to revoke certain privileges that had been granted to Asia's financial hub, including special trading status. The capital flight from Hong Kong ensued as investors pulled out in haste as the Hang Seng Index closed 5.6% lower today. The escalating U.S.-China tensions with this announcement also has caused some major U.S. indices to dip on the news as well, even as they had rallied earlier in the week on the hopes of a vaccine. As Asia struggles with many waves of new infections and the U.S. is trying to coordinate a gradual reopening, this aggressive power grab by China could further intensify the geopolitical aftermath that was already set in motion by the pandemic. And with that, I'll send it back to you, Ash. Welcome back, Rao. We've survived another week. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. You know, it's one of those weeks where it feels that like everything happened and nothing happened. I mean, the S&P is basically at the same level for a month now. Yeah. S&P closed uh, at the 29.55 level today. Uh, it is uh, up 63.56% from the, uh, from the uh, post-crisis low above the 61.8% retracement level, 29.33. Yeah, but it's been basically messing around here for ages. I mean, it's very difficult to know what to talk about because I'm just looking at the chart of the euro. Well, it was here in March. It was here in April. It was here in May uh, twice. So that hasn't gone anywhere. I look at the chart of the S&P and it's been doing the same. I look at the chart of bond yields, they've been doing the same. It's only basically been the NASDAQ that's been any higher. There's a bit of upward drift that's been in some of the commodity markets. Gold has obviously done well and Bitcoin's done pretty well. But even then, Bitcoin's been faffing around at this 10,000 level, waiting for the next action. Feels like things are kind of just treading water a bit, waiting. So talking of the NASDAQ and potentially faffing around near the 10,000 level, what are your thoughts about what's happening on the NASDAQ? 
I think that there's obviously passive money going into favorite names. We've seen a enormous piling in of retail. You know, the Robin Hood effect is real. So because there's a young generation that's been told that in a recession, you buy stocks, that's the dip, right? We haven't really had a dip and they've been buying stocks. So that's interesting. So there's that. But nobody's buying anything else, really, because if I look at the structure of the markets, and I wrote about this in, in Macro Insiders in Real Vision Pro, and also I talked about it in the Ask Me Anything I've just done, uh, again, for the Real Vision Pro guys, is there's a number of tiers here, what's going on in markets, because the NASDAQ is near the all-time highs. The S&P 500, as you said, is about roughly the 61.8. By the time we get to the Dow Jones Transports, it's about 38.2 retracement. By the time you get to the banks, yeah, about 23%. By the time we get to the European or Japanese banks, it's about zero. And by the time you get to the really indebted big companies like General Electric, it's about negative. They've gone to new all-time lows. Well, one thing that is definitely on the move is your dog. I can see one of them uh, off to your left is now finally woken up and is uh, potentially about to join the briefing. <laughs> they've just gone out. My wife just opened the door, so they just snuck outside. <laughs> They're desperate for their coconut time, which is then when they go chasing coconuts in the sea. And I've got them trained really well now because they shred all the husks off a coconut once it's been wet and in the water for a while and then deliver me that perfect nut which I can break it on the rocks outside and get fresh coconuts. So that they have a purpose apart from just to irritate me on camera. Now that's a true Caribbean dog. <laughs> exactly. You know, on a serious note, uh, Roger and I and Ed and I were also talking about uh, European banks uh, and some of the uh, some of the pretty uh, you know potentially grim uh, framework that might be around that. What are your thoughts more specifically there? Well, listen. Again, there is a narrative I think that's being slowly uncovered by the markets that anything related to debt is not doing well. So NASDAQ is a non-debt-laden index. By the time you get to the banks, there's a lot in there, right? Because they're the, always the epicenter of debt in various ways. So these European banks have a whole bunch of issues to contend with. One is part of that $12 trillion that's lent out to foreigners in the offshore money. Well, that's come from the European banks. That's debt. They have a bunch of over-indebted uh, European corporates. That's a debt problem. They have bad loans themselves still left over from the last time around. So they're basically zombie banks. What's interesting to me is that because the ECB is basically backstopping them, it means that they don't go bankrupt, but their equity goes to zero. That's what we're seeing happen. And I think we're going to see the same in things like General Electric and Ford. I think because the Fed is going to backstop the credit, the equity is going to go to zero. Yeah, that's interesting. A sort of so a divergence between the common stock and what's going to happen on the debt side. Yeah, because something has to express the weakness of the balance sheet, and it'll be the equity and not the debt, because the debt is essentially underwritten. It's in, it's very interesting, and maybe the shareholders get wiped out. That kind of I, I get that makes sense. You know, talking about European debt, we're just coming off uh, a couple of hours ago. You did uh, a really terrific Ask Me Anything with Max Weefy for uh, Real Vision uh, Plus. I still always think of his name as Max Wi-Fi. <laughs> well, Spanish, Spanish people say Weefy for Wi-Fi. Is that true? Yeah. I didn't know that. Very cool. So that could be like when he uh, does a tech blog for Real Vision. He'll That's be right. uh, Max Wi-Fi. Wi Real yeah. Vision. 
Perfect. Um, but you talked about something that I thought was really interesting. And if you're a Real Vision uh, Plus or Pro tier subscriber, go check it out. It should be posted in an hour or so. Uh, it really was very interesting to hear you talk about European debt. And you said something that I thought was really interesting. You suggested that, you know, first two things. Number one, this 500 billion euro, 543 billion uh, US dollar aid package that Macron uh, and uh, and uh, and the German Chancellor uh, Merkel are working on right now is a you know relatively small drop in a large bucket. But you said something that I thought was even more interesting, which was that you said even beyond debt mutualization, debt mutualization simply is not enough. This is not a problem that can be solved with the stroke of a pen. There are broader structural issues with economies that are operating with you know sort of convergent monetary policy but divergent economic growth. Yeah, so so this is the, the core of the issue. So Germany and France can say, oh, yeah, look, we, we think we should mutualize the debt because they want to hold together Europe. I get it, right? The problem is, is what does that send to say to the Italians? Oh, well, I can just go and borrow some more. I just could do another 20% of GDP in stimulus, and they've got to backstop it. But then the EU says, well, no, we've got this structure in place now. Because we, we already got the Maastricht Treaty and the Maastricht Criteria and you're not supposed to do this. And the, and the Italians will go, well, show me the punishment you've given me. Zero. So there is no punishment for breaking the rules. So therefore, you might as well give all of your debt and shuffle it onto everybody else's balance sheet. Well, if that's the case, the Greeks want to do the same. And before you know it, the French are doing the same so they can bail out their own banking system. It doesn't work. It's still not the answer. It feels like the answer. Everyone wants it to be the answer, but it's not the answer. Because everybody can still behave independently on their fiscal side. And that's the issue. Right. Yeah. It seems like it's a, a purgatory-like situation that cannot last forever. It needs to go one way or the other. Yeah. And as I've always said, it doesn't go one way or the other with the euro one, 109. It goes one way or the other with the euro 75 cents. And that's what has to happen. Nobody does anything without a gun to their head in, in government, right? They just don't do it. So you, somebody has to put a gun to your head, and then the Europeans will make the decision which way forward. Is it break it apart, break apart some of it, or closer integration, or closer integration throw some people out of it? Who knows? Right. But something will, will be reached, but not without a crisis, and we're not there yet. Uh, Gore Vidal once wrote that the first rule of politics is when in doubt, do nothing. Yeah, and that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. They'd rather do nothing. Yeah. Um, so another interesting uh, topic that Ed and I and then Roger and I later talked about on RVDB uh, earlier in the week is this notion that uh, potentially the challenges uh, with debt at Deutsche Bank may actually be good news uh, for the Italians uh, and for Spain. Do you have thoughts about that? I don't even follow the argument. So, what? Explain briefly. Yeah. So the argument is basically um, when uh, you know it's like when I have a problem, it's sorry, mate, that's too bad. But when you have a problem, it's boy, we're all in this together. And the idea is that if Deutsche Bank uh, needs to be bailed out by the German government, which almost certainly they would have no choice but to do, it being a national champion and a substantial part of the German economy, that then. The Italian uh, and Spanish banks can say, well, you know, what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. So I think it's going to happen anyway. So let's go back to my discussion about, OK, the ECB are basically backstopping the, the, the debt of the banks, their mm -hmm. bonds. So their bond, bond holders are underwritten. 
but the equity holders are going to zero. Which sounds very much like that means that the that the uh, the banks are going to be nationalised. Yeah. Either through the mechanism of Deutsche Bank being bailed out by Germany, or the mechanism by the via the ECB. Um, some way down the line, these banks will get nationalised and will end up being merged together, split apart, then refloated, cleaned up, and we can eventually get through this. But that, that's not a quick process. It takes time. Yeah, I mean, it's when you think about past, past na uh, bank nationalization efforts, they're complicated enough when you have one sovereign state involved. And you can imagine with these overarching levels of sovereignty between national governments, national central banks, the EU, the EZ, I mean, it's it's going to be just an incredibly complicated situation. Yeah, I mean, the UK had to basically nationalize RBS, um, you know, in the crisis. So they had to become the largest shareholder. In this case, I think the government's become the only shareholder because as the equity goes to zero and then yes it, then it really is messy and then you get misallocation of capital but maybe you also get allocation of capital as Richard Werner talks about you know he was on with Hugh Henry this week yeah. and he talked about how the Japanese and the other Southeast Asians were able and the, we've seen it with Chinese able to pinpoint where capital should flow for example because in the US you give companies the ability to borrow and what do they do they buy back their shares and you're like what the government would love to say is, no, what, what, why don't you put it in this sector or do something, right? And if you own the banks, you get an ability to direct capital directly to where you want it to go. Uh, in this day and age, some of these governments would quite like that, good or bad. You know, governments are no better at allocating capital than anybody else, as we know, arguably worse, <laughs> but not arguably not that much worse. I mean, I think the, the US corporates have been spectacularly bad at allocating capital outside of the uh, fast-growing tech names. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the uh, piece with Hugh Hendry and uh, Richard Werner. If you're looking, uh, Richard Werner, of course, is the uh, is the author of uh, the uh, uh, Princes of the Yen uh, about the uh, BOJ. And if you're looking for a great primer, not just on what's happened in Japan, but also on central banking in general, it's a great piece to watch. Yeah. And Hugh is always entertaining. So, uh, you know, you know, it's, you know, it's always great entertainment and lots to learn. I mean, the comment section was on fire with this. You know, there was really a lot of intellectual stimulation for a lot of people, people having a light bulb moment. Yeah. And I think he also did it like from the beach. Right. He's like literally on the beach somewhere it, in his same bar. Or something. That's that's here. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so, Raul, moving on, uh, you know, the other thing that struck me today were two stories completely unrelated, pure coincidence, totally nothing to do with each other. Number one, uh, the Chinese government has announced that they are no longer going to be publishing GDP targets. So they're no longer going to be publishing uh, their growth targets. And second, in a completely unrelated story, uh, it appears as though the special status of Hong Kong is very much in doubt. What, yeah, the story yeah. is effectively- so the, the GDP story, we don't care because we've never used their own GDP forecast. But the point being is it's very hard to conceal the issues. And we don't know, as I've been saying and saying and saying, we don't know after the kind of initial rebound where this is going to settle. And China doesn't look like it's settling in a positive GDP position. So the best thing is just not report it. Um, you know, that's a very classic way. But 
I think more concerning is what's going on in Hong Kong. It's kind of exactly as Kyle Bass talked about. So Kyle was on Real Vision a couple of weeks ago chatting to me, and he's been on several times before talking about the infringement on liberties on the Hong Kong people by China and that slowly but surely they're taking over um, Hong Kong and moving away from the um, two systems, one country idea that Hong Kong had from 1997 onwards. So, you know, you've seen the Hong Kong stock market. Nick talked about it earlier. Hong Kong stock, stock market under pressure. You know, there's a risk that the Hong Kong currency goes eventually. But, you know, China itself is very weak. This is a very bad setup for that whole region. So we'll have to see how it develops. Things don't... This is a... Um, as I said, this is more, more about solvency than liquidity. Liquidity events happen quickly. Solvency events take time. So don't expect an instant um, outcome, but expect an outcome over time. Yeah. And for those who aren't following the story in, in Hong Kong as closely, uh, China has effectively announced that they're going to be opening security services offices within Hong Kong proper, uh, which seems like a significant encroachment on any type of uh, remaining special uh, administrative district autonomy. Um, if you're interested in a deep dive on this uh, topic, as you pointed out, Rao, uh, on the platform, Kyle Bass uh, did a, a great deep dive with General Robert Spaulding uh, on the Chinese security situation, uh, and they touch, of course, uh, on Hong Kong. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, Kyle's been a lot, very vocal about a lot of this, um, and I know he's heavily in touch with the U.S. administration um, about various parts of this. And I think it's a big focus of the US itself, the relationship with Hong Kong. I, my guess is if Hong Kong, if this situation in Hong Kong continues, the EU will be last, but the UK will have to take a, a stand because don't forget they were the people who handed over Hong Kong to the Chinese under certain agreements. Yes. So it, it's, it's, it's not a good situation. The US is already talking about more trade tariffs on, on China. China's already talking about retaliation. So we know that China is going to be the scapegoat for the um, virus um, over the election time. We heard Kyle Bass refer to it as the China virus or the Wuhan virus, you know, and that's purposeful, I think, amongst people within the administration and around its sphere of influence who are not fans of China. So, it, look, it's, a, it's concerning for everybody. Um, I don't really like the saber rattling at the times of economic hardship, but you know it happens. Yeah, and Kyle's been more than just vocal. He's been really ahead of the curve. If you watch some of the interviews that he's done on Real Vision, uh, there were topics that no one was talking about at the time, and then they gradually crept into the news cycle. Yes, I mean, as always, people who are well ahead of the crowd tend to get scorned somewhat, you know. Oh my God, what's he talking about? It's not that important. And before you know it, suddenly everybody's obsessing over it. And you're like, oh yeah, he was right. Um, so, you know, good for him. Yeah. And on Chinese data, as you pointed out, no one's trusted the official numbers for a very long time. Uh, one of my favorite guests at Real Vision has been uh, China Beige Book creator Leland Miller, who I've had the pleasure of interviewing, who's terrific. And we have three great interviews with him on the platform that talk about the way that uh, the uh, Chinese uh, gather their data and give you a deep dive on how that those numbers get formed. Yeah, he's always interesting. And uh, I'm also looking myself at more high frequency alternative data sets. You know, we've seen the, the rise of TomTom Tom data and open, open table data and stuff like that, where people are trying to understand on a day by day basis how things are. 
And I think we're going to be able to find some really interesting understandings of of the nuances of how economies open and don't open, what works and what doesn't work. Yes. Um, you talked about also uh, during the Ask Me Anything today. You talked about the uh, you talked about the two year yield, which is now, of course, uh, at about seventeen percent. What are your thoughts on seventeen percent? Seventeen basis points. Yes, yes, yes. Zero point one seven percent. Seventeen basis points. Uh, it's it's you know it's hard to say that, isn't it? It's weird to say seven seventeen basis points for the for the two year for the two year Treasury. It just doesn't feel right coming out of your mouth. It feels like it should be one point seven, but you know. It's yeah. is what it is. So the the you were talking about that today, and I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, about the future trajectory of that rate. Look, it's drifting lower. If you look at the, and we talked about this, I think probably last week, and I talked about it a lot. Fed funds already trading at 100, which means zero percent, and just over 100, so they're saying negative rates. Um, two years, and now, as you say. 17 basis points been low is about 15, 14 basis points, 10 basis points. My guess is that they will go down to zero and cross through zero. Much like in 2012, two-year shats in Germany traded through zero and went 20 basis points negative. It took 18 months for the ECB to actually go negative. So, um, so I think what's happening in rates is a general drifting lower. So what's extraordinary, again, one of these things that tells me that my narrative potentially is right is while the Nasdaq's near all-time highs, the bond market hasn't moved at all. And in fact, last week, two-year yields hit a new all-time low. So it's very, very interesting to me. I've also noticed that the UK is has gone to negative rates um, in two years. Um, I don't know if it's the first time. Let me just – I'm just going to – Real time, I'm going to stick up my chart of gilts and have a look. But I think two-year gilts are all-time ever lows in yield. While you're checking, it looks like the uh, the low on the US uh, T2 was uh, 12 bips. Okay, yeah. So, okay. yes. So, the UK gilt market is, what, several hundred years old? We're at the lowest. We're negative rates. So, I mean, it's truly extraordinary. And I mean, I think they're going to go very negative. Yeah, it's strange. It's as though we're all the collective frog in the pot. And these things happened rapidly. Uh, and without the uh, the sort of terrible human tragedy around the virus, we would be all freaking out about this right now, right? Yes. I mean and, and again, um, people need to adjust to this. We are so used to liquidity events. Market sold off, sharp panic, right? The Fed now had to deal with liquidity events more Slow solvency events are much more difficult because they happen bit by bit. First, it's J. Crew, then it's J. C. Penny, then our G share price has fallen another twenty percent. Oh, look, the two-year yield's gone negative, and then nothing, and then it's a German bank, and then it's something in Japan, and then oh, look, mortgage debt in um, Canada is going up. It's insipid. It's just, it, it's slow and it's grinding and it moves and it gathers pace and it lowers economic growth. I, you know, I really am concerned that that is what lies ahead. And again, we're all waiting for the flush out, the quick moment, the shock panic, and we won't get it. Yeah. And that's a market nobody knows how to deal with. Yeah, we're so good at dealing with the acute events. 
It's like emergency medicine. You can slice off three of your fingers, pack it in ice, take it to the hospital. They're reattached, and three months later, you're working in. But a slow, nagging, aching pain in your lower back that's around for 10 years, you can't really do much about it. No, exactly. Uh, and that's exactly it. And it is, you know, it is the frog in the boiling water. You don't realize. And you distract, everyone's distracted. Ah, the opening, the opening, amazing, amazing. Let's fight politics about how should we do this? Should we do it this way or not do it? Or who's irresponsible? Who's responsible? The point being, none of that matters. We should be dealing with the circumstances at hand, which is the markets and the economy. What you think or I think should be done is noise. What yeah. is happening is reality. Yeah. And there is a lot happening. You know, one of my favorite points of the uh, of the Ask Me Anything that you did uh, earlier today was you literally grabbed your uh, your laptop and showed your Bloomberg terminal screens, all the things that you're looking at, literally like a peek inside. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I've been looking at is, you know, Remy for Global Macro Investor writes the, the COVID updates. I mean, I don't know if people have been following this properly. And I post it on, link I post it on LinkedIn every week now. It used to be daily. We do it weekly. So the world has now gone to a slightly higher rate as Brazil, India, Argentina, and a bunch of countries are now seeing accelerations in the virus. This is not going away. This is, nothing looks like the Europe curve or the China curve, and we don't even know what to believe in the China curve, but nothing looks like the Europe curve because they had such a hard shutdown that we had the bell curve with a very quick slope off the other side. Everything is looking like this. The US outside of New York is looking like this. Only New York took the medicine. What does this mean? I don't know. Cases just staying at highs. What does that mean for growth? It's again, people get so caught up in it should be like this. They should do that. When the reality is, what does that mean? Is that good or bad for markets? Is that good or bad for the economy? I'm much more concerned um, than others about what this actually means. Yeah, that's such an interesting point, Ralph. You know, the other thing that concerns me is it's very clear that the pressure in the United States is now uh, gradually and then rapidly building to reopen the economy. And we just have, and I'm not trying to be a pessimist about this, obviously we're all hoping for the best, but we just have no idea of what happens to the virus when the economy begins to reopen. No, and as I said, we can filter out everything and the bond market will figure it out. We've like got the, the, the chart of truth will be that two-year yield curve. It will whisper it to you quietly. Hey, this is not going as well as you think. Or, oh, this is going better than I thought. The bond market will know. It'll be whispering in your ear very soon. So just keep your eye on it. And at what, at what point on the curve are you looking at? Is, do you think the two is the best reflection? Yes. Like the two has just gone negative in the UK. I hadn't realized that. I'm just looking at the chart. It is one of the most epically scary charts I've seen because it's broken this 10-year sideways range on two-year mm. yields. And therefore, it looks like the next leg down is like to negative 2%. It's the two-year, I think, is the important part because that's the, you know, the short-term money is all around that kind of level. That's, that's the big one. Um, and it, it will tell us. Are you watching the spread between twos and tens? Yes, but that's going to be complicated, right? Because if I'm right and twos go negative, let's say they go negative 2%. Mm. Well, then probably 10 years would be negative half a percent and we'd have a steep curve, one and a half percent. 
But one and a half percent steep curve where everything's negative is probably not a curve with any velocity of money going on. So it's not giving you the classic signal. It doesn't really help the banking system either. A negative curve, uh, a positive curve, all in within negative rates. So it's complicated. I do think the yield curve steepens, but I think it does steepen like that with a bullish steepening all the way as yields fall across the curve. Yeah, and then we can throw in the real rates component, right? So uh, we get a negative print on CPI uh, in April, uh, minus 0.8%. Uh, so what are you thinking when you think about uh, inflation and real rates, Ralph? So when I'm looking at my work for Global Macro Investor and my forward-looking inflation gauges, the US and around the world are going to see headline CPI prints of negative two and a half, negative three. Let's say that realistically something like negative one, negative one and a half sticks for a while. Well, with rates at zero, that's real rates at one and a half percent, which is a long way from where the Fed want them to be. I don't see any way you can get around without without cutting interest rates negative. And the market's going to price it. You know, it's so interesting. And we say that so casually. These are really dismal numbers. Yeah, this is, look, I can't explain to people everything that has driven Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, and Jay Powell is the fear of one thing. (laughs) Running out of ammunition, i.e. zero rates and deflation. Because then real rates can only go up. Right. This is the fear. Nobody understands this. This is the whole game. Europe has been in this situation on and off. And as Japan, it is the end game because you can't get out of it. It's really, really difficult to get out of without massive fiscal stimulus and somehow regenerating the cash flows for all of the country, whether it's a household level um household level, small business level, or big business level. So that is the big risk. And that is why the 1930s was a four-year event and not an 18-month recession. It's because it was a solvency event based around, you know, real yields being too high in the middle of a recession. Uh, And that has been the fear all the way through. And as ever, most people attract their own fears by trying to take evasive action. So the central banks used interest rates too quickly to try and never get into the situation where we had this and they tried to head off a recession faster. Well, the problem is, is each time because of the the amount of leverage in the system and the aging population, interest rates went lower and lower and lower. And lo and behold, we're at the horizon point they never wanted. Zero rates and the biggest recession we've ever had. You know, this is such a critical point you bring up, Ra. I'm looking at the 20-year chart right now on CPI, and the low print uh, was minus 2.1 percent. Uh, looks like in uh, in uh, in June of 2009, at the depths of the the last recession. But you know, in, in the bigger picture, when you talk about the framework that Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke have brought to this, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the macro uh, people who are at the top of the macro profession now are people who are in their 60s. And the fear point that they have uh, is uh, is 70s style inflation, uh, because when they were early on in their career, they saw that and it was just such an incredible, uh, you know, an incredible blight on markets and on the broader economy. We were kids when that was happening, obviously, uh, and don't remember it. But the academic macroeconomists, the serious academic macroeconomists, their fear is deflation. You know, you hear the names Irving Fisher, you hear the name Hyman Minsky. 
The fear is that with real interest rates plunging, the value of the debt becomes absolutely crushing to an economy. Uh, and this is something that uh, serious people have been concerned about for a long time. Yes. And that is the, the understanding with which the central bank have made many mistakes. But the reason they did it was this absolute fear that they're at the cliff's edge, been doing this for 20 years now. Right. And, and we're there. And let's see how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. They've had all the opportunity to try and figure it out. And I haven't seen any solutions apart from liquidity. And yes. guess what? In a solvency event, liquidity doesn't help. Because what you're so the, just to explain this to the viewer, what do I mean by that? So, Ash, you're a hundred thousand dollars in debt. You don't have a job. How do you pay it back? I say, hey, listen, I'm the Federal Reserve. I'll lend you some more money. And you're like, but I, I don't have any revenue to pay my debt. Hello, hello, can you hear me? But I'll lend you money. No, what I need is my business to grow to have some margin over my debt to service my debt. I need a job. That is the difference between solvency and liquidity. Liquidity is, hey, listen, I'm sorry, central bank, but you know, I've got most of my money tied up in the stock market. You know, I've got my money in the house and my paycheck's coming next week. You know, I'm about to get a bonus. Can I just borrow some money off you? Sure, of course you can. Yeah. Or, you know, I've got a I've got a few bad months because I've just had to buy a new sofa. So I just need a bit, I've got a bit of cash flow shortage. Can I borrow some money? How's your job? Oh, everything's fine. Sure, of course you can. That's liquidity. Two very different things. Yeah. You can't paper over a solvency crisis. You can't. And what's interesting is we have done just that for three months, and rightly so. Governments have gone, okay, you can have some, 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 right. Who's now missing money? Who's got a cash flow problem? Oh, you can have some, you can have some, you can have some. Yeah. And the central bank has said, look, and, and we'll make sure you've all got it, right? So... Great. Three months. Guess what? 30 million people unemployed in the US. Nobody cares because everyone's got a check. I mean, literally everybody's got a check. Well, that PPP rolls off next month. Yeah. So what? They're going to have to go for another, another 1,200, another 1,200, another 1,200, another 1,200 because things are a bit slow. And then Nancy Pelosi and that whole bill is going to have to go another 3 trillion. You know what? We need to do another one of these payment protection things because you guys are all going to lay off the people that you guaranteed you wouldn't lay off for three months so you can get that check you're going to do that you're going to lay them off now so we're going to give you some more money to stop laying off people well before you know it, that 20 percent to 25 percent of gdp the entire world has just tacked on in debt in a month one month they're going to do it again and then you've raised debt by 50 percent right in a three months four months period Okay, fine. So what happens next? If that if that cash flow doesn't catch up with your debt problem, it's game over. So what? The, they keep doing this, and the central banks keep split the money printer going. Right. Uh -uh. Somebody's going to take the strain, and it's gold, it's Bitcoin, it's the dollar. There's a number of factors, and I don't see how this changes, and barring a miracle, and we everything goes back to normal, and it's all okay. Yeah. That usually happens in fairy tales and not real life. Yeah. I mean, look, one way of thinking about it is to say that the, the medicine or the treatment uh, for the liquidity disease is the cause of a deeper uh, ailment with solvency. Yes. Don't forget, the last crisis was dealt with by low rates and massive injections of money into the system. So every corporation on earth went, excellent. 
let's just borrow more and buy back our own shares and make ourselves rich. Right. Foreigners said, fantastic, we'll just borrow dollars. They're giving them away. Well, so what happens is the solvency step got closer, not further away, because suddenly the world was a lot more in debt than it started. Right. And Jim Rogers was talking about that very clearly on the piece today on Real Vision Plus. There was a great ahead of the curve with Mark Mobius, Jim Rogers and Simon Ogus, an old friend of mine and one of my most trusted people on Asia. But you know, Jim Rogers is very clear. One was great. Jim Rogers is a, is a, seems to be a Real Vision fanatic now. He talks about nothing but Real Vision and how amazing it is. But um, And Jim was a hero of mine when I first started. I mean, Investment Biker was one of those books that influenced yeah. my life. Um, but, he, you know, he took very close and uh, clearly about, you know, the debt issue. And Stan Druckenmiller said the same, you know. What happened is after a debt crisis, we doubled the debts. You're like, really? Guys, that was the whole idea was not to do that. Right. Yeah, and it's it's also very much a global problem. This is not something that's limited to the United States by no, any means. The US as ever does it spectacularly well. <laughs> you know, anything you can do, I can do better. You know, the US <laughs> is pretty good at that shit. Uh, but, uh, but um, you know, it's always hold my beer as the US goes spectacularly into debt. Um, and, you know, the US is the most indebted nation in the history of all recorded information. I mean, nobody's ever been this far in debt before. As a percentage, less so. Um, you know, we've got other nations who have that um, that 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 mantle. But yeah, it's a it's not good. You know, I, I, was, I had a long chat with somebody, and um, I will mention no names, but um, he is a global macro investor, a Real Vision fan, and he was one of the senior partners of one of the biggest credit hedge funds funds on earth, um, and he retired a while ago. And he's just looking at this, and him and I were talking about, yeah, this is a really tricky situation. It really is. Um, and it, you know, he, as a credit guy, said, look, it's solvable, but it's like a sausage machine, a hand grinder that has to go on for years to get through, work out with all the creditors, who, what, how, how much of a haircut everybody takes, what's going to happen. Very, very complicated to deal with this amount of potential issues, if I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm going to have all the egg on my face and everyone's going to be out popping Bollinger in the streets. Mm. Great. I'd be super excited if that's the case. Um, yeah, just, it just it just seems like your best case scenario is complicated, slow, and messy recovery. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. We've just blown through half an hour. Hard to believe. Wow. Um, yeah, this one really flew. I guess the good news is that you and I will be back on Monday. That's right. As long as the dogs don't break in and ruin the session again, um, I will be there on Monday to talk about, we'll talk about the rest of the world because the US is closed, the UK is closed. So it's a generally a quieter day in markets. So I think we'll have a little poke around areas that people don't look at to see what's, what else is going on. Because, you know, the world is always an interesting place. There's always a story somewhere and something that we should be taking a bit of a dive into. Yes. Raul, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and have a great weekend, everybody. And thanks, Ash. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.